from digitiki.com. Yes, I think it's voodoo. Voodoo? Shh, let's not upset the women. Let's not upset the men either. Great fantastic things have been going on in these waters in the for which there's only one explanation. Voodoo? Voodoo. Some people think it's a silly superstition. I've heard tell of witch doctors in these parts I can turn people into hyenas and baboons and all kinds of wild jungle animals. Welcome to the Quiet Village. Welcome back for another visit here at the Quiet Village. I am your host, Digitiki, coming to you direct from digitiki.com, broadcasting in the heart of the Quiet Village. And this is another extra special episode. If you recall, the last episode I did was a memorial episode for Ernie Minahuni, the Hawaiian entertainer. I am very sad to say this episode is also a memorial episode. It's going to be for one of the greats of Exotica as well as American music. Mr. Robert Drasnan passed away on May 13th, 2015. For those of you who may be a little new to the Exotica world, Robert Drasnan's 1959 Voodoo LP is a seminal tiki record and a requisite in any Exotica collection. The album was reissued in the late 90s by Dionysus Records on CD. The CD is out of print, but still can be found uh, fairly readily in used markets, that sort of thing. It's also available as a digital download from iTunes, Amazon, and almost any service out there. If you do not have it, get it now. It really sets the mood for any tiki environment. I was fortunate enough to have known Bob Drasnan. He was much more than a composer who recorded one Exotica record in 1959, as you'll hear in this episode. He was an accomplished jazz saxophonist and clarinetist, a prolific film and TV composer, a professor, teacher, mentor, and so, so much more. I met Bob uh, in 2007 when I had volunteered to help out at the Hooki Lao with the entertainment. Uh, the Hooki Lao is a weekend tiki event in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Really fun. It just so happened that was the was uh, when Robert Drazen was releasing and performing his new Voodoo 2 album at the event. So I was asked to put together the orchestra and instruments for his performance. The performance was simply amazing. But my real treat was the Thursday before the show in Florida. Bob took the whole band out to the Maikai for dinner. Uh, there I was at the Maikai, which is one of the most amazing tiki restaurants in the country. I was having dinner with Robert Drasnan and the orchestra, drinking an exotic cocktail out of a giant coconut husk. And that was a true moment of Zen. It was simply, it was simply amazing. Bob was very gracious, kind, and enormously talented man. I was fortunate enough that in June of 2015, just a month 
after his passing that I was able to perform a song, Enchantment, from his first album as a tribute to Bob while playing with the Alika Lyman group at the Hukilau in front of many of the same people who were there for the 2007 performance. That was uh, really heartwarming, and they were very touched that we did that particular song. To help me talk about Bob, I brought in Jeff Chenault, Quiet Village regular here and very good friend of Bob's, as well as Skip Heller, a accomplished musician, colleague, and very close friend to Bob as well. All right, I'm here with Jeff Chenault, who is a regular here on the Quiet Village. Aloha, Jeff. How you doing? Doing good, Mark. Thanks. All right, and I'm also here with uh, Skip Heller, a very talented musician, very prolific musician. Um, also, you've done a movie and film score, uh, a TV and film score. Uh, you fly all over the country and do gigs. I think I've I've uh, met you at places like Tucson and other places, and um, yeah, and uh, it's good to have you, Skip. Welcome to the Quiet Village. Oh, thank you very much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. Well, I, you know, I've actually wanted to have you on before so it's good that i'm glad to have both of you guys on and i just wish it was under better circumstances but uh we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna talk drasnan talk <laughs> and why and, not why not and uh both of you actually worked with him quite a bit i know um skip you produced the voodoo 2 record right yeah i also produced the reissue of the first one. Oh, you did okay yeah, um, that, was, uh, that was how he and I got to know each other, is I heard the first one, and I said, man, this is as good as anything that I've, you know, uh, it was as good as anybody else's records that I'd heard mm-hmm. uh, in the style, and I thought it really should be, you know, out where people could get it. And so I tracked him down, and uh, I think he thought I was pulling his chain when I. Uh, no, I mean, he never, he never supposed that he was as good as he was. Mm-hmm. And I think it wasn't until finally we were together that you know I that I said, well, you know, here's what I did, here's what you know, here's what I'd like to do next, and here's how Voodoo would be part of that. And, uh, you know, the, the rest is the, the music that came after, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't, even, I don't even think Bob knew how good it was, did he, Skip? He was never presumptuous enough to think that anything he did was for the ages. You know, I mean, it was most of the job to him, wasn't it? His name went on it. So he, he wasn't going to let just anything go through. Yeah. But he was a guy writing music that, you know, was going to be on a television episode or something like that. And then when the episode's done, hey, that's kind of the end of it. I don't, I don't think he was actually looking at the... you got to remember the record company this was recorded for mm-hmm. was a very low-budget record company. I don't think he was really looking at this and saying, this is my ticket to posterity. <laughs> <laughs> Tops records, Tops. yeah. <laughs> Tops. I remember picking up the CD and um, from the first measure, it was like, this is fantastic. It totally set the mood. He was, uh, 
just really good at not wasting time. Mm-hmm. So when it came to establishing the feeling he wanted out of a piece of music, he didn't mess around. Once the tune starts up, you sort of know you're going on this little three and a half, four minute trip. Mm-hmm. He's very efficient at getting you into his idea. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's, it's a gift that he just owned over the years. I mean, you know, you listen to his film music. I was just listening to the score from the Kremlin letter the other day. Mm-hmm. And it's oh, like, man. man, that guy is just not messing around. And this is something that uh, probably a lot of people who are listening to this may not realize, even though I know, Jeff, you've mentioned it uh, here before, and so have I, that Bob made a huge name for himself in television. He was the director of, of music at CBS, was it? Yeah, yeah, director of CBS. And, and a lot of people may not realize he did a lot of TV movies he did uh, incidental music for Hawaii Five O, The Man from Uncle, I think. Uh, Mission Impossible, Wild Wild West, Twilight Zone. Twilight Zone, yes, that was the one I was trying to think of. Classic stuff. Here's a, here's another thing people don't know is he was the music editor on Twilight Zone for a couple of years. Oh, really? Yeah, I don't even think Jeff knew that. Um, no, no, I didn't. He didn't want it known that he was a music editor because he thought it would get him fewer composing gigs. Uh. And there were a few seasons there where Twilight Zone was like on much more of a shoestring. To the point of even uh, shooting on videotape, not film. And uh, Bob was putting together music for a lot of those episodes from existing CBS library. You know, I mean, he was just like, if it had something to do with music, whether it was being the music editor, whether it was being a music teacher, whether it was being an orchestrator, an arranger, a conductor, a composer, a saxophone player, mm-hmm. he was he was great at it. And that's probably another thing a lot of people didn't know. He was he was a sax player. In fact, um, wasn't he part of Red Norvo's band at some point? He was in, uh, yeah, he was in Red Norvo's quintet. You know, he he was on that stuff, but also he had been in Les Brown's band. You know, he'd been in a, a lot of big band situations. I mean, really? he started out when he was 13 years old playing on the Hoagie Carmichael show. They had a kid band, oh, like really? a big band of all Los Angeles high school students. Yeah. Well, I didn't know he was part of Les Brown's band, too. I mean, that's... Tommy Dorsey. Dorsey offered him the gig, which he didn't take. Hmm. And uh, I forget why he decided not to, because he would have, in essence, been replacing Buddy DeFranco, who is considered a great bebop clarinet, you know, bebop Uh clarinetist. Uh But Bob never really felt like he was the greatest saxophone player, probably because his best friend was. (laughs) His best friend was Ronnie Lang, Uh who played most of the flute stuff on the uh, Mancini scores but also is the alto saxophone soloist on Taxi Driver. Oh, really? That seat, that's a lot of stuff I did not know. <laughs> that's that's great. Oh, I was just going to say, what Bob is known for, if you were to look him up in Who's Who of American Music, it is as a film and television composer. Correct, yeah. And, you know, because the, the Tops record, nobody ever wound up... Uh, you know, getting the golden ticket because they recorded for tops. (laughs) 
you know, Tops was a knockoff bargain label. Yeah. Not that good people didn't record for Tops. You know, there's some stuff I have on Tops that uh, Charles Mingus seems to be the bass player on. <laughs> <laughs> also, George Jones cut two songs for really? Tops under the name Hank Smith. <laughs> wow, that's cool. Yeah. So, you know, and then Dave Pell did a whole bunch of big band albums on top. So it's not like the label was just putting out inferior stuff. Right. It was just an exploitation record label. Uh-huh. How much money can we make today, you know? <laughs> yeah, well, they would just like literally see like, oh, chipmunks are big. Um, right. <laughs> let's, let's make a chipmunk style record. Yeah. <laughs> right. But the other side of it was because the budgets were, uh, on one hand, the records were all done union, but since the budgets were relatively low, they didn't stand over people. They just sort of said, hey, make this record, make us a record in this style. Come back with it. Yeah. And so, as a result, you had a lot of people with a free hand to make interesting records. So this, this, this voodoo record, I'm assuming was a response to Denny's Exotica, because that's right about the same time, isn't it? Yeah, I'm sure it is, because Quiet Village was one of the singles that helped save Liberty from going under. Yeah. And Dave Pell was definitely commercially minded. So between the Martin Denny phenomenon and the provocative percussion phenomenon, um, I think that they said, okay, let's let's do this this way. (laughs) You know, and... Since it was a low-impact assignment, so to speak, Dave Pell knew Bob could write. So he said, hey, Bob, why don't you write? The next thing you know, this album comes out and promptly disappears. And Bob goes on to his much more uh, rewarding career, both Mm -hmm. financially, artistically, and in terms of his reputation, doing music for a lot of really great television shows and a few great movies. Yeah, yeah, a huge body of work. Until you've had to move it, you don't know how huge it is. (laughs) Well, let me ask you, since you were in on the ground floor of of the reissue of the original Voodoo, what was the genesis of getting this album reissued? Because I imagine it probably was pretty esoteric at that point, right? No, a lot of people were, you know, Caroline was doing um, their scamp label where they were doing all those Martin Denny imprints. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and those were just wonderful. And Ashley Warren, who was producing all those, and he was really taking a lot of care to make sure that they had great liner notes and that the sound was really good and the whole thing. And they they did well. Unfortunately, as you can probably guess, uh, the more titles came out, the less well they did progressively. But mm-hmm. Capital was doing ultra lounge. So they weren't doing single artist CDs. So there was a really good, uh, it was a really good environment for, Hey, let's make these records. Mm-hmm. And I tracked Bob down. And as I said, I think he thought initially I was joking, but then when I showed him a Les Baxter, uh, release that I had just prepared for Dionysus, he was, he was like, well, why not me? Okay, great. Love to. And Lee Joseph at Dionysus, she was just like, yeah, let's do this. Okay, great. 
because Lee is a total record guy. Yeah. And we had not found the master tapes at that point. So we, Bob gave us an unopened copy of the LP on gold vinyl. We took it over to Len Horowitz's place to master it. And we did the transfer from vinyl and there you have it. And he's, and he's really good at that sort of thing too, Len. Len is a ninja. Yes. (laughs) Although Keith Pollack has a mono safety copy of Voodoo One. Uh, On tape? I'll I'll get to that. I'll get to more about that in a minute. So (laughs) we now have a mono source Uh that's completely analog. The problem is um, if, you know, when, when we're looking at that in relationship to the other stuff, that's the only one that was done analog. Mm-hmm. Voodoo 2 was made digital. Voodoo 3 was rendered digitally. Yeah. So I don't really know what the value of one volume is analog versus the other two volumes isn't really is. <laughs> well, you know, Bob actually called me to help out, basically be a studio slave for Voodoo 2. And I was there for the recording, and uh, because I had just worked with him at Hooky Lao, putting the band together for him to perform at Hooky Lao. So he called me and he said, hey, do you want to come and help out and plug a mic in here and there? And I said, of course I do. Uh, but I remember talking with him, and, and he was telling a story about, about Voodoo when you guys were trying to release it, and Top saying that the master tapes were gone, and then... Now, you can correct me if I'm wrong. If the um, not long after you guys brought out the uh, the vinyl transfer, there was some other company that came out with a full 20 bit digital transfer. Yeah. But they left two tracks off. Yeah, I was going to say, which would have been like, you know, even better had they decided. And it was just their cheap way of not paying him for two tracks. Right. Which. You know, that's one of the things that keeps the price down when you make something budget is, you know, uh, can we leave a couple of tracks up? Because that way it, it, it knocks the royalty payment down by 20%. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas if they had called Bob, I'm sure he would have given them what they call a favored nations clause, (laughs) which would have been, I'll give you the, you can, if you just keep the thing together, I'll give it to you for the price that you would have paid for two cuts less. Yeah. And Jeff, I I know that you probably knew of that album a long time before most people did, right? You probably had the vinyl. Well, I found the record at a thrift store back probably in the 80s, you know, and then I kind of hocked it away, you know, after listening to it, you know. I just thought it was just another really cool, you know, Exotica album uh, and threw it in with all my Martin Denny's and Les Baxter's. Mm -hmm. And, and And then it didn't really resurface until I... I saw that Bob was starting to perform again, and I think he performed with Skip back, like, in, what, 96, Skip? Was, well, there was, uh, there was like, a release party where we put together a little quartet, and yeah. I I got Bob to play for the first time uh, clarinet since 1966. And then in 1999, right. we mounted a performance with the Minnesota Contemporary Ensemble. Right. Which, That's uh, what I met. Met you at, I believe. Right, which was not what I would call a really uh, representative <laughs> performance of what the music. No, was. Bob wasn't happy. Bob wasn't happy at all with that performance. That's for sure. No, it, neither neither nor I. You know, were really. Uh, I don't think we either of us 
felt that we got adequate time to rehearse and what got me was the audience. I mean, they weren't they weren't very appreciative at all. They were very loud throughout the entire performance. And uh, I remember trying to, to to listen to this music, you know, because it was really important to me at the time. You know, I'm like, holy cow, people, do you know what is going on right now? <laughs> <laughs> you know, they, look, they that audience went there with the, for all intents and purposes, it was just like, Another Friday night. You know? Well, it was it was the music they had heard DJed at Exotic Night, and they had talked over it and had drinks over it then too. They weren't really receiving it like a concert. Mm. Whereas when you go to Tiki Oasis, everybody's out there in the grass, and they're going like the centerpiece of the event is going to be we're going to see this crop of live music. Mm-hmm. And the other thing is, frankly, Tiki Oasis. And the hooky law, for that matter, people are really gearing up for it for months. Yes. The respect that they're going to give it isn't just going to be, oh, look, it's in the weekly paper. It's, man, I, I'm I'm making my dress for this thing. Six of, <laughs> what are you making your dress for? This is going to be my, this is going to be my listening to the Scandell's dress or whatever it is. <laughs> Correct. You got that down. You, I think you summed that up in, in very, very well. Going going into Voodoo Two, that was uh, a really interesting, a really interesting album because when you play Voodoo One and Voodoo Two back to back, they they really do complement each other very well. And I and I have to say it's it's like going to the, a live concert, you know, actually getting to see some of that laid down, where you 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 really get to see Bob in his element. You know, he it was fascinating to watch. Well, it's fascinating for you to watch, and for me, it was like walk the plank um, <laughs> because it was. It was, I don't know if you remember, but basically my job was to walk around with the score and go, you, you, and you, don't play here. Come back in here. You, play more here. You. I remember that. I remember that very clearly. Your favorite word of that day was tacit. <laughs> it's true. Um, one of the things that people don't understand is that Bob's generation of film and television composers tended to double the bass lines all over the place. Uh-huh. And there's a real obvious technical reason for this. Televisions back then had terrible speakers in them. So if you didn't want your bass lines to be lost, you doubled them. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, you know, when you're making a record, obviously you don't need five instruments playing the bass line. Like a lot of it was just saying, here, you don't write here. Then we'd sort of go like, okay, one or the other. Okay, divide it up this way. You do these four bars. And then there were other things where you have to understand, too, I didn't hear the music before that day. I studied the scores. I I memorized what was on the paper. 
So I would have big things circled. We're like, we're going to need something else here. <laughs> you know, no, seriously. If you, um, in East of Xanadu, which is my favorite cut on voodoo too, mm -hmm. you'll notice there's like this samba parade drum that comes in in the second part of the tune. Cause when we got to that point, it was like nothing new was happening. I was like, God, we need something. And so I just said, well, let's see. I'll steal this trick from Caetano Veloso. <laughs> At the end of it, Bob goes, that was a pretty good idea. Steal some more of those. <laughs> Just a lot of it. The other thing is Bob was very hard of hearing at that point. Yeah. And Bob always conducted with headphones on. And the headphones were not so he could hear the group. The headphones were so he could hear his click track. So a lot of what I was doing there was, again, you guys, tacit, here to hear. Percussion guys, do you have something a little lighter? You know, like, because I have a theory about Exotica, mm -hmm. which is that, the more that you hear a ride cymbal on a drum kit, mm -hmm. the less exotic it is. <laughs> That's a good point. If you're supposed to be dreaming of like chilling at uh, Don the Beachcomber in 1958, what's that going to be like? Where are the instruments going to be placed? Mm -hmm. How, you know, so everything on Voodoo 2 that I had anything to do with mixing, some of it I did not get to mix, unfortunately. Um, Philippe Aubuchon did some of the mixing. Mm -hmm. But I had everything kind of in an arc. Mm -hmm. So the feeling would be like there's this group set up around a patio and you're on a hammock in the middle of it. Nice. I think these records are best listened to when you're reclining. I agree. <laughs> My tie's always nice to have, too. Yeah. I never saw Bob drink any more than half a beer. So. Right. <laughs> well, and with Les Baxter, it was always uh, margarita. That's right. You, <laughs> really? you knew Les Baxter quite well. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I'm, we're going to have to talk a lot more about that soon. <laughs> Getting, getting back to, to Bob's music, as you saw, we did everything in two days, and it was a lot of making your judgment call on the floor in the minute. And Mark, uh, didn't, you, uh, didn't you film a lot of the uh, rehearsals as well? I did. The, the interesting thing was there, was there was a guy there who was a student from the college, because this was recorded at Pierce College, am I, okay. if I'm correct. And there was a guy there from the college, and... He just handed me like a pro camcorder and said, Here. I, I remember, yeah, I remember you shooting some video, and then I shot a bunch too, both days actually. Yeah. yeah. And I haven't seen any of this, you bastards. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, should, we should make you a copy, Skip. We I, should. Yeah. Please. In fact, uh, right. I, I think I sent you a copy, Jeff, didn't I, of the raw footage? Yeah, I've I think got I a did. bunch. And, yeah. uh, I did cut together, I edited together a really short interview with Bob that used 
images of that session, and it's on YouTube. And no, that I've seen. Okay, but, you know, like I was hardly in any of that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've got a bunch. Well, I've, I've, I know in that raw footage you're walking around all over the place, so I, I'll have to pull that out and uh, make you a copy. We sort one of the things that Bob and I said as part of the game plan is said, let me contract cap the musicians. It's just so everybody knows who this guy with the sideburns is walking around with the score going, you do this, you do that. <laughs> and, and of course, you know, Bob had been playing with my musicians and my groups. So, and they loved him and he loved them. So it's like, Hey, yeah, great idea. Let's get Howard. Let's get DJ, you know, so on and so forth. And, um, but the bass player was Jim Hewart, who played on a lot of the Tom Waits records and some uh, David Frischberg records. And Mike Lang was the piano player who played on just more stuff than you could ever goddamn a, a dream. A bajillion scores, I, I believe. I've right. met him before. Yeah, he's a monster. And he was like, he, he was playing something in a way that I knew Bob did not want him to play it. He was sort of embroidering <laughs> it. And I just said, like, look, just play what's written. And Mike Lyon gives me this look and goes, well, who are you? And Jim Huart <laughs> looks at him and he goes, he's the guy that's keeping 14 of us on schedule. So lunch will be on time. I'd listen to him if I was you. <laughs> I was just like, he came to my rescue on that one. Cause Mike was obviously like the big dog in the room. Whose music is all written out, by the way, is deciding that he knows Bob's music better than Bob knows Bob's music. <laughs> and yeah, I remember that. There was, there was some friction going on there for a little while. There. Well, not too much with me, but with Bob, because Bob kept trying to get him on remembrance. He kept trying to get him to play the piano part so it would sound like Snowfall by Claude Thornhill. Uh, and he was not getting that out of Mike. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and it was just, you know, it was not the most comfortable thing in the world. Yeah. But it was also, I wish we had done it in three days instead of two. You know, because yeah, there were, yeah. Well, there were things that we could have done better with four more hours. Yeah, yeah. Well, you I'll, know, I'll, I'll I mean, tell you what. What you what you've got is is a phenomenal record. It it is really a wonderful record to listen to from front to back. I got to tell you, you did a great job on that, Skip. Well, thank you. I mean, the the secret weapon there was Stephanie Bennett was brought in at the last minute. Because the singer who was supposed to do it couldn't, and Bob was sort of adamant about, no, we need the vocals in. She caught, she got the call at the last minute, and she shows up in this sort of exotic gown with a plastic layer around her neck. It's like, <laughs> all right, boss, I'm ready. <laughs> and and now I guess if and nobody listening knows about it, there is a Voodoo 3 that is going to be coming out next year. and No, it's actually available. The CD is available now from Dionysus Records mail order. Okay. 
Um, we're working on a plan for like a kind of special way to release three that I don't want to say too much about it because I don't like to jinx these. Sure. I understand. (laughs) Keith Pollack from Tucson called me and he said, I'm going to be, I'm going to be out in North Hollywood and Bob's recording Voodoo three. I said, what? (laughs) And he said, sure. Do you want to come check it out? And I said, yeah. So I actually got to see a couple hours of the session and, um, it was very, it was very, very impressive. Yeah. And then I didn't hear anything about it for so long. Well, the recordings themselves weren't played very well, and they weren't recorded very well. And he kept recording and recording and recording. And uh, in September of 2014, um, Keith and I went to eat lunch with Bob up there in. You know, Bob used to live in Westlake Village. Right, yeah. And uh, I said, I said, you know, what's what's happening with uh, with Voodoo 3? Because I, I wasn't involved with it. You know, I think somebody somebody decided, I think Bob just decided he wanted to work without a producer. Mm-hmm. You know, which I totally understand. On the other hand, uh he found out pretty quickly he needed somebody and the guy who he brought on as his co-pilot was a bit overmatched. Uh. When I saw the way the scores were prepared, I was like, I'm anticipating a few problems. Yeah. How many tracks were there total uh, that he recorded? I can't remember. It was about 30. Wow. But, um, that doesn't mean there were 30 good ones. Right. No, I mean, he, he'd be the first to, you know, I said, I don't think this one's very good. He's like, yeah, you're right. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, he said, well, I'd like you to take it over. I said, well, do me a favor. Keep so-and-so on. And so-and-so walked off in a huff. He didn't even show up at the memorial ceremony. Um, mm. Yeah. So, uh, you know, we had to, the first thing we had to do was listen to everything mm-hmm. at the studio. And just say, before we could even say if something is good or bad, it was like, can we repair this? The one thing that struck me during the session was that unlike the the original Voodoo and Voodoo 2, he had, at least at this session that I saw, he had uh, French horns and uh, he had some horns. Uh, did they make it into the final? That stuff made it largely. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had to do some editing tricks. Okay, we had to do a lot of editing tricks. <laughs> <laughs> understood, understood. <laughs> I mean, cause, uh, because the, the other idea that everybody had was, well, why don't you just re-record it, you conduct it, you do that. And I was like, no, this is not the Robert Dresden tribute band. Mm-hmm. And I don't want Voodoo 3 to have an asterisk next to it, mm-hmm. as if to say sort of Robert Dresden. I wanted to make sure that what you heard was a combination of what he heard in his headphones or what he thought he was hearing in his headphones, because again, his click track was so loud. Uh Um, but also what he, what he expected to be on something that's a record by Robert Drasnan. And I, as modest as this sounds, I'm probably the one guy who you can come to and say, what would he want? Yeah. And and get an answer that everybody would go, yeah, let's go with that. <laughs> the thing about making an Exotica record 
and I'm sure you'll both agree with me on this one, is the people you're making the record for have just as strong ideas about what they don't like as what they do like. And what they consider to be exotica and not exotica. Precisely. Yeah. You know, it's the same thing when you're working with the rockabilly community. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to make sure, because I knew, I knew he was not going to get a chance to make another record. And well, the uh, Tommy Morgan uh, 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 tracks got to stay, too. Yeah, they did. That's great. I love those. I mean, as soon as you hear Tommy Morgan's harmonica, I mean, it's just, you know it's him. It's like, wow, this is so cool. Was he there when you were uh, at that session, Mark? No, I didn't notice a harmonica uh, at the session. Yeah, the, the thing was, too, is um, he tended to write too much for for Tommy because he liked him so much. Yeah. And I was like, uh, Bob, can we change this section of this to another instrument just so it's not concerto for harmonica? And he was like, <laughs> pretty yeah, good that's... Friends, right? What's that? They were pretty good friends, right? Oh, him and Tommy? Hell yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but it's just that when you have an instrument that the sound of it is that pronounced, it's sort of like if a beautiful woman walks into a room dressed all in black with a cigarette holder. Man, the moment you see her walk into the doorway, it's just like whoa. <laughs> but if she's just standing there for twenty seconds, not doing anything different, then it's like. Get out of the way, Morticia. The caterers want to bring in more of those little chicken finger things. <laughs> and okay? of course, you know what I mean. It's like yeah. the, the, the harmonica is such an extremely pronounced instrument, and and Tommy was playing it for all it was worth. I had different ways to, I had different ways to like use him. But as I said, if he's doing a 16 bar phrase, which is just an eight bar phrase played twice, I would change it to another instrument playing the second eight bars of it. Mm -hmm. So that way, when the harmonica reappeared, now that beautiful woman has reappeared and now she's lit differently or something like yeah. that. <laughs> right. You see, re-sparks that Kindle again. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's exactly the thing is because it's such a distinctive sound. We don't really hear that unless, unless we're sitting around listening to Stevie Wonder all week, which I might do. <laughs> you're not hearing that much chromatic harmonica. So when you hear it, it really leaps out. It's yeah. such a distinctive sound. Well, I think Voodoo Three Skip is is a is a wonderful uh, way to end the uh, uh, Bob's uh, Voodoo trilogy. I mean, it really sounds really nice. I mean, it's a it's a perfect ending. I hope you're right. I mean, the the thing that I was most concerned about was it sounded like his music and not mine. Yeah. You know, I, oh, I really it's had totally, to... That's totally Bob. I mean, he's got those reoccurring themes, sort of like Les Baxter did. You can really hear that 
uh, in Voodoo 3, I think. You, you'll hear these reoccurring themes every once in a while, you know. And uh, you can tell it's Bob. And, and and like you said at the at the top of this, um, with just a few bars right at the intro, he establishes the mood. Uh, that's what well, what you said is is something that was really subliminal to me. But once you said that and put that into words, that made perfect sense. That's like the, a Drasnan trait right there. It is. He just he he is just very. I mean, believe it or not, one of the hardest things about. Once we had everything mixed, once we had everything repaired, mm-hmm. I, I loaded all the MP3s into iTunes, as was the style at the time, <laughs> and um, started playing with stuff in different order. And just like, except for the Rolling Stones, nobody wrote better intros than Robert Dresden. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's that same thing. It's like, if you were going to sequence a Rolling Stones greatest hits record, and God, he would hate hearing this part of the conversation. <laughs> but, uh, but think about any great Rolling Stones song. You always remember the intro. Yeah. Satisfaction, Gimme Shelter, Street Fighting Man, Sympathy for the Devil, any of them, you know, except for Miss You. Uh, you always remember the beginning. Whatever I pick first, it's going to be fine. Yeah. But whatever I pick first, it's also going to set the mood for the whole record. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And Tim Schmaltz, who was my uh, co-pilot, mm-hmm. he was my assistant producer, and he was a student in Bob's last class. That's how I met him. Mm-hmm. He was, yeah, I mean, that was another thing. It's like Bob's legacy as a teacher. We haven't really gone into it, but uh, his legacy as a teacher as is is as immense as his legacy as a composer. And uh, I don't know if you know the, the punk rock band, the Pandoras, but the <laughs> bass player for the Pandoras also studied film and television music writing with him. So, so the first time I met Karen, she's like, you're Skip Heller. I'm like, yes. Um, I was taking Robert Dresden's class at UCLA just as you were getting his Exotica record reissued. And he was always talking about you, and I thought it was kind of interesting that this punk rock guy kind of came to Exotica, and, you know, I always thought it'd be cool to meet you, and it was like, wow, you know, <laughs> you have no idea how flattering that is. That's pretty cool. Mm. Yeah, so his his legacy as a teacher, but I had, uh, Tim and I were sort of the, you know, we were we were like the guys looking at the at Bob's scores and going like, well, maybe we should do this. And each of us always remind, no, that's not what he wrote. If he wanted that, he would have written that. There are a couple of things in retrospect that would have done differently because they corresponded to his hearing loss. Uh Um, You'll notice that the harp and the electric piano are playing a lot of the same thing. Mm -hmm. So rather than move the harp up an octave, because he didn't do it. Uh, I said, well, you know what? I'm going to play left and right because the Exotica records are really about stereo. Yeah, yeah. So we've got the electric piano and the harp handing over the parts because that was a way for me not to change any of his notes, Mm -hmm. but to keep things from being crowded because some of the writing did get a little bit dense because he was writing in the range that he could still hear best. Yeah. And I decided I was not going to editorialize what he should be writing and how he should be writing it. 
but rather I'm gonna I'm gonna take what he wrote and make sure that everything in my power um, is accomplished to get it to be what he needs. I want to say that you accomplished exactly what you wanted because the first track right off the bat that I that I auditioned it was like well yep this is it well it had more bossa nova elements uh-huh um that was one thing uh another thing was that it had uh it's weird it, it, there's some more jet set type stuff in there if you uh-huh. know what I mean yeah and uh th- that's why I like hula Baloo so much because it really sounds like it could have been the alternate theme for Love American Style. <laughs> but I, I, the, the other guy, i got to say, and please make sure this does not get cut out of this, okay. is, as I said, we had to do every technical trick in the book. There is so much under-the-table, surreptitious, studio and other type trickery in here. And if we had had any less of a guy than Patrick Burkholder, uh, at the console, we would have been in real trouble. Mm. Uh, the the engineer and I took when we were spooling the stuff off to listen to it. You know, I I took Bob to the studio and he just loved Patrick right off the bat because Patrick's father is a musicologist for one thing. Mm-hmm. So Patrick could look at a score and see where we were and things like that. But also, Patrick has the uh, the patience of Job and the ingenuity of Tesla. Uh, and Bob knew how much we were going to have to fix. Uh-huh. And his, his attitude was like, I don't want to say, well, anything is better than what I have, but he knew what he had wasn't releasable. So it was going to be more than just, hey, let's just mix this and put it out. The demands on me to be able to like look at the score and figure out what Bob wanted via his own writing. Mm-hmm. The technical demands on me just to know what Pro Tools could or couldn't do, what I could ask for. Um, no, I mean, I wound up reading all these books about film editing because uh-huh. I realized we were going to have to do stuff like that. Oh, well, we'll just take these two bars from take three and put them in take four. Oh, and that thing that's on that whole other tune, <laughs> we'll just use that as the percussion part. Yeah. And that's, you know, and then on top of that, I mean, like, Bob died on May 13th. Mm-hmm. I think it was like May 19th that um, Michael and Michael Drasnan, his son, and Marlena Drasnan and his wife said, finish this. Mm-hmm. The next thing you know, like, I, I had to stop thinking about the emotional component of it, and I had to stop thinking of the difficulty of it and just say, I have a deadline. This has to be, pre- this has to go into the pressing place on August 8th. And that that doesn't just mean the record has to be mixed. That means that I have to have artwork. <laughs> yeah. Three weeks into me starting it, I called Claudette, Claudette Barshow. And Claudette and I know each other very, very, very well. You know, she, she drew that cover, which is basically uh, a Haitian voodoo death mask mm-hmm. against a blue background because blue is Bob's favorite color. Everybody who had to come to the rescue of this project brought their A game. Big pile of credit goes to his family for going, we have to get this done for him. This was the thing keeping him alive in the last years of his life. And then, you know, in my little crew, just going, let us carry out the man's wishes. 
and it really did take a village. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's, it's definitely worth repeated listenings because there's lots of, uh, uh, little things in there that you don't catch on the first listen. Uh, there's Mark, also things that, that he never that. did before. Uh-huh. You know, there's like things that you never heard on a Robert Drasnan record before. Right. Right. And it's just like, including writing lyrics. It's like, yeah, I'm 85 years old. Think I'll start writing lyrics. (laughs) Yeah. I noticed noticed there was more vocals on this, this, uh, so I wanted voodoo one to lead up to voodoo two and then voodoo two to, to move to voodoo three. And then voodoo three really end with a a more intimate farewell, Uh which is aloha. Yeah. And, uh, which is to me, Bob saying goodbye, and he knew it. He knew he wasn't going to make another record after this. Of all of the music in his long career, and it's an amazing career, um, I'm glad that he chose Exotica to return to. He could have returned to anything. Yeah. Or he could have just written books about music teaching and he would have been such a great citizen of music. Even when I was listening to this stuff and hearing like what was wrong with it, I was overpowered by how beautiful the writing was. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree, Skip. It was the the Exotica music that really rejuvenated Bob in his last few years, you know? Yeah, but if somebody had come to him and said, hey, do a film score, it would have been a film score that, you know, he was just ready to do more music. I think yeah. he was just really surprised when I came to him and said, remember that record you made in 1959 that nobody could possibly remember? <laughs> it's brilliant. Right. And, you know, when... When the Hookie Lao thing got organized, he was just startled by it. Uh, that was the one that was like the most robust performance. Mm-hmm. I, I missed you know? that one. I, that's the that's the one I didn't see. That one, and I didn't see his performance at on the Beachcombers that one year at Christmas, I think. Yeah, but it, you know, he um, we really worked hard for him yeah. on this record. We worked really, really hard for him. Uh, because everything that he taught me, and he taught me a lot, he taught me a world, I had to use to make that record. And one of the difficult things is every time I ever had a big project before, even if I didn't ask, even if I didn't wind up asking him how to accomplish something on it, I could afford to be a little cocky because I had him to ask. I want to thank you both, Skip. Uh, Skip, thank you for coming on, and Jeff, both of you, thanks for coming on. Oh, any any anytime you want me to sit around and gossip about the old guys, man. I would love but to. Thank you so much for your your support of Bob's music. Thank you to everyone in the community for being for making him feel like the last part of his life was a celebration of himself and his music. It, it, yeah, what, exactly. what more can I say other than it? he just wrote beautiful music. It was wonderful to sit and listen to, which was what it was for. Well, thank you, guys. I really appreciate it, and I know I'll, I, I'm going to have you both on again for sure. And uh, so until next time, aloha, guys. 
Thank you so much. All right. Take care. Mahalo, Mark. Big mahalo to uh, Jeff Chenault and to Skip Heller. I also want to give a big, big mahalo and thank you to all of you who are listening out there who are helping me help support Bob's music. I also want to uh, give some thanks to some special people, obviously Skip Heller, Jeff Chenault. I'd also like to thank Keith Pollock from the U of A, who is also a very good friend of Bob Drasden's. I'd also like to thank Christy White, a.k.a. Tiki Kaliki, the producer of the Hookie Lao. Otto von Stroheim, the producer of of a Tiki Oasis. There's a whole host of people that I just don't have time here to name, but I would like to just extend my thanks to all of them and to all of you for listening. Now I would like to leave you with something very, very special. This is a, a, a bit of audio that has never been heard before, or at least heard in public. I'm, I'm going to play for you Robert Drasden and his orchestra performing live at Hukilau 2007. This is the first performance of some of the tracks from Voodoo 2, and it's very, very rare and very special. I also would like to... Um, to mention the Waitiki Orchestra because they they made up the majority of the Robert Drasden Orchestra with Randy Wong on the bass. And uh, it's a very, very heartfelt performance. And uh, here you can hear Robert Drasden talk about how much he really appreciates the Tiki community and uh, the response that he's gotten. I think you're really going to enjoy this. So I am going to leave you with Robert Drasnan live at Hukilau. Until next time, everyone, aloha. If it weren't for the Hukilau two years ago, uh, this would not be happening tonight. I never dreamed of, of doing a sequel some 48 years later after Voodoo won. <laughs> I owe it all to a few people, and all of them, most all of them are in this room. You know, without Christy and Jeff Chenault, James Teitelbaum, Mark Riddle, and all of you people that have been so wonderful to me, and I really feel your love, and I really appreciate it, and I hope you enjoy Voodoo too. It was recorded uh, in February, and this is the first performance. And I was very fortunate that Mark and Christy were able to find this fantastic group of musicians. Yeah. Yeah. Okay.